0: Hello, you're very welcome to episode 14 of The Week That Really Was with myself, John McGurk, and as ever, David Quinn. Actually, David wasn't here last week, we'll say welcome back to him, but we're also joined this week by somebody who's been a friend of mine and of David's for many years and um, mightn't be that well known to most of you unless you're on Twitter, in which case you should be following him. He is the Chief Executive Officer of the Catholic Education Partnership and his name is Alan Hines. Alan, it's great to have you with us and we'll come to you in a minute. But first, because David, you weren't here last week and I wanted to talk to you last week and we didn't get the chance um, about Pascal Donahue, because this is the scandal that just won't go away. This is the situation where the Minister for Finance um, at one stage this week, we didn't know whether he under-declared a donation by about 244 euros or whether he over-declared it by 600 euros. Or uh, 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 It's very small amounts of money and apparently there's a ministerial career on the line. Um, I think it's a load of nonsense, being frank. Um, am I wrong?
1: Well, I mean, we're going to talk about Pascal Donahue. We're also going to talk about, um, towards the end of the show, the big story of the week as well. I think it probably actually grabbed more people's interest than the Pascal Donahue's story. Oh, you know, with how could we Enoch forget? Burke. E- 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 yeah. Burke. Yes. Yeah. So yeah we'll get around to it.
0: Yes. And listeners should also know uh, my apologies. That was an error on my behalf. I'm normally supposed to list the topics at the start of the show. We're also going to talk with Alan about the state of Catholic schools. And also there was an incident this week in um, in the City West migrant accommodation center that's worthy of some comment and we'll come to that so David cor- thank you for doing my job and correcting me <laughs> there but but, but now don't evade the question anymore Pascal Donahue um
1: and I'm, I'm going to add one more thing as well in the in the segment about schools um we're going to talk about how they are proposing to teach sex ed in schools and um, because that's so major and will be of concern with so many parents but finally answering your question <laughs> Pascal Donahue um so i mean to me it's basically a storm on a teacup um and i i don't think the public are biting by the way i just don't get the impression that the public are riled up about exactly what pascal donahue knew about how posters up on lampposts in the 2016 and 2020 elections were being exactly paid for uh by this uh property developer and businessman that he knows um there is an element of schadenfreude in it uh for me to this extent um uh i've been kind of writing for years about the excessive regulation in the area of party political donations there are extremely heavy restrictions placed upon them much more onerous than in the likes of britain and the uk generally um, who has it right, I think we have it wrong. Um, I think uh, that these political donations have become far too limited. Uh, I think the number of rules and regulations about them have become far too great. But these are rules and regulations that basically the entire political establishment have signed up to. So can't really complain when they themselves find them too complicated to follow. And we've seen that Sinn Féin has also dirtied its bib. In respect of political donations and exactly you know who paid for this meeting room that particular night and did we record it properly in our CIPO return SIPO is the standards and public office commission that oversees exactly how the electoral act is implemented and I say CIPO themselves have trouble following their own rules so you know he who lives by regulations to some extent shall die by regulations and even a thousand regulations everybody is going to fall foul at some point. So this is what we see unfolding before our eyes. But another aspect of it is, and this has been brought up before on the show, and I brought it up many times in my column is, when you make it very hard for, for political parties to raise money, you make it very hard for new political parties to break through, especially when the established parties are getting so much money from the state. So they're able to fund themselves out of public coffers, and it basically creates a cartel. So here are the established parties, we're hunky dory because we're getting all this money from the state. You newcomers, you're gonna find it really hard to raise money because you're not established. Therefore, by definition, you're gonna get you're not gonna get money from the state. And you're gonna find it really hard to raise any substantial amounts in the public either because of all these funding limit rules. So well, I, I think it creates a cartel.
0: I have to say I don't know what kind of poor fool would donate money to a politician in this country anyway, because the limit is a thousand euros you're going to have to find a very desperate politician who's going to do any meaningful favours for you for a €1,000. And you can, bear in mind, there are zero donation limits. Well, that's the point, you, though, isn't it? Yeah, but, but hold on a second. But, but there are zero donation limits on what you can give to NGOs and lobby groups. So if, for example, you wanted to change policy in a particular area, I would think it was much more beneficial to, to, to spend €10,000 donating to the lobby group of choice and mm. possibly hiring lobbyists as well, because there are no limits there that is donating to some poor sap backbench TD, even yeah. if he is he or she is a future minister. Alan, um, what do you think about this? I know it's not your area, and and you probably have oh, to be careful well, what you say, but um, what well, are your I, views?
2: Well, I, I, you know, first, uh, John, it's a pleasure to join yourself, uh, and uh, David, um, I have to say I turned to the Irish Times the other day, opened it up on a full page on Pascal's woes. And I mean, it was just extraordinary, all this coverage over what is, it, you know, I, when I used to work in business, there was a thing called immateriality, where, you know, you wouldn't spend several thousand euro trying to track down a hundred euro stock differential on stock take. We're, we're kind of into that. I mean, mm-hmm. it had the inevitable Miriam Lord article as well. It just, it really to just kind of force a scandal out of nothing. And then, of course, the usual thing, you know, once Sinn Féin filed in, uh, you know, someone went looking and teasing through there. Uh, finances and, and sure enough up Pop Fanon Sheehan delighted with himself to have found several discrepancies there as well and you know we can start trawling back to every single political party because as David said there's a thousand and one regulation, very easy to trip you up the minutiae of it is always going to catch somebody out um, and look you're right, I think we've we've set up now a political funding model uh, that has made it very difficult In fact, because of ethics legislation it's made it very difficult to get a new party off the ground but it's also meant to political parties no longer have to depend on fundraising locally, and um, because mm-hmm. the, the state funding is so so significant, and part of the you know the party's membership is, is withering because they don't need to keep it up in order to keep a funding stream going, and they're they're becoming increasingly disconnected from, you know, I suppose reality to a certain extent, because yes, uh, lobbying groups, NGOs, and so on have no limits of far you know the accountability structures are, are far less visible and. Um, and parties dislocated, and, and now other points of influence are coming in. Where there's well,
0: well look, we we, we Alan, Alan broke up a little bit there, but I think we got the point that he was he he, he 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 was making, and that essentially is this is a a storm in a teacup. Um, it is the equivalent of going sixty two kilometers per hour in a sixty kilometer zone, uh, and that is that's an objective statement, and I find it laughable. I find it particularly laughable. I mean, if there's evidence, any evidence whatsoever that the Minister for Finance did any favours for any donors on foot of somebody um, putting up posters for them, then somebody bring it forward. But this implication that um, ministers can be bought for tiny, tiny, tiny sums of money that doesn't even go into their own pockets is, I think, laughable. And I think it's, it's very telling that we have a political press that will spend months... Apparently, so I saw the Independent bragging today, we record as ever on Thursdays, I saw only from the Independent bragging that they spent two months unearthing this story. It would be a long time before they'd spend two months unearthing any kind of ideological scandal, but the Irish political press is obsessed with this kind of gossip-mongering minutiae, and I think it's it's really bad for our democracy. And and it's, it's, it's eating into public trust in politicians, not that that should be high, but it's, it's not what the media is for. Uh, nobody's being challenged here. No ideas are being challenged. It is pure muckraking. Um, By the way, the, the,
1: the, the public funding of to legal parties, uh, there's something somewhat analogous to it in Germany, whereby um, Germans typically pay a 1% church tax. For some reason, even though most Germans don't go to church, whether it be Protestant or Catholic, uh, they still pay the church tax. So this means that the churches in Germany get plenty of money out of, ta- out of, tax-, out of tax coffers. And what it means is that the churches in Germany, whether uh, they, again, be Protestant or Catholic, are becoming more and more detached from the members. They don't need to raise money from them, all mm-hmm. right? And yeah. they become also more susceptible to pressure from the state. Mm -hmm. And they they become more like the state and what the state wants. And these um, uh, churches also, they have huge, swollen bureaucracies that commonly employ people who don't even believe all that much in the church's message. And that creates internal pressures to conform ever more to kind of fashionable opinion. So it Mm -hmm. can have a deeply corrupting effect. And in this country, of course, we see... Well, we're going to make state funding of political parties dependent on things like gender quotas Mm -hmm. when it comes to candidates and the state is going to do all kinds of stuff like that more and more as the years go on, in my opinion, and the parties will say we got to obey them
0: because we have become so dependent. We should have a show at some stage today that I'm thinking out loud and we didn't discuss this before, but we definitely have to have a show at some stage about the creeping quotaization of Irish society because I heard an example today which was just bizarre. But I want to move on because one thing the press was talking about this week was Pascal Donahue. one thing the press was determinately not talking about, I think it made page six in the Irish Examiner, was the, uh, the incident in City West where on, I think it was Tuesday evening, there were about fifteen Garda cars, along with several ambulances, and unconfirmed—and I should stress unconfirmed—but convincing footage from inside the hotel, which appeared to show a full-scale riot between um, competing groups of people being accommodated there as part of Ireland's migrant um, um, obligations. And the story didn't really get any attention. And I was thinking—I I thought out loud—I wrote this the other day. But if if if, if we had a riot, David. Mm-hmm. at an anti-migrant protest in East Wall. Let's say three people were hospitalized, there was footage of people attacking other people with chairs and so on and so forth. I put it to you that we would now be on day, it's now Thursday, we'd be on day 2.5 of a five-alarm national panic mm-hmm. about far-right violence um, and the danger uh, to societal cohesion. And yet, nobody wants to talk about the fact that in these migrant centers, there are lots of people with the very genuine reasons to be there, some with not so genuine reasons, and that's what the process is for. But there are a lot of people coming from very different backgrounds who don't much like each other. And it seems bizarre to me that we're accommodating people fleeing homosexual persecution on the one hand, with people who are very strongly convinced in their religious motivations and, for example, hostile to homosexuality, and they're being accommodated with people they're very hostile to. Um, It's bizarre. They've now shut down uh, City West and not taking any more people. Um, We had the Taoiseach today, we had confirmation today that there are at least seven migrants who've been refused any sort of accommodation are now on the streets. And yet the Taoiseach said today, we won't turn any people away. This story is just going and going and going. And I think it's increasingly out of control. And I think the public are really rapidly losing patience.
1: Well, at the beginning of January, there was also, remember there was violence in a um, centre in Kerry, and it involved. um, Nigerians, sorry, Algerians on one side versus Georgians on the other side. And there was um, um, stabbing incidents took place as well. Um, And it reminds me, by the way, of something we discussed a few weeks ago, which was um, the trouble in the center of Rakeel over Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, And this involved, you know, essentially um, um, uh, traveler families. And that was only kind of whispered as well. And you see, again, it gets back to one of the first rules of political correctness, which on the surface isn't a bad rule, which is never say or report anything that might increase prejudice against a minority group. But what, of course, it leads to is the cover up of all kinds of important news stories. So there's no analysis done of, well, why would the Algerians and the Georgians be fighting? and um is it a good idea to put them in the same center if there's some kind of tensions now those tensions could have been purely to do with what was going on at the center who knows but we're not going to find out and similarly in in city west well what was going on there again we don't know we probably never will know and the right questions won't be asked and by the way if you don't ask the right questions well then you're setting yourself up for the same thing to be replicated in the future so who you actually serving but this desire never to cover anything properly that might increase prejudice against a particular group actually leads to kind of Chinese whispers about the whole thing. And it leads to a breach of trust in the media for not giving honest coverage to these things. And so it again, it provides an opportunity for the um, far right, quote unquote, which sometimes is genuinely the far right to start spreading around videos that may or may not be accurate and to put narratives and interpretations on the story that could be widely inaccurate because the mainstream media is not doing its job properly. So ironically, in the name of um, trying to avoid prejudice by not covering these things, they're probably increasing it by uh, because the rumour mill then gets going.
0: Well, I take issue with one thing you said there, David, where you mm. said that, uh, you said that the, the media doesn't like to whip up prejudice. Um, They have no problem with being a prejudice against working class people who are protesting this stuff. Mm. There were at least seven articles in the Irish newspapers this week denouncing. And I mean, I know because we've interviewed them, people who actually voted for people for profit at the last election, Sinn Féin at the last election, parties of the left who are protesting this stuff and are being utterly and completely traduced and denounced as far right. And by the way, the media never interviews them. You never hear any. All you hear is oh, the far right are protesting. The people are being being whipped up on Telegram and, and and some other shady sounding social media network to hate foreigners and hate migrants. And these are hateful protests. But you never hear these people on camera in case, God forbid, they might make sense. Um, Alan, I think there's a shift in the country on this issue. I think there's growing public concern. Mm. You're not like me or david uh, a, a commentator or possibly in the media bubble are we mad to detect such a shift or do you think it's happening as well
2: no i think there is a shift uh, and i think you're right but by not actually reporting on these things and essentially kind of leaving them well some sense of mystery around them it is allowing rather a savory voices to get involved and put a narrative onto that silence mm-hmm. um but i think a lot of problems we saw this in schools by the way with with the large number of ukrainians coming to the country which are, are certainly our schools and, and many other schools did a fabulous job of of meeting them but the Irish state is too concerned to be seen to be doing the right thing and to and not as concerned as they should be to actually put the systems and resources in place to 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 match uh, their declared virtue so i mean we had situations um down in in munster where there was I think about 60 ukrainian uh, refugees simply left off in a small village um the department of children knew they were there no one had told the department of education that there was going to be a large need for schools and you ended up uh, for a couple of days where no aid arrived from the state no, nobody official was there it was left to the local principal the parish priest and the gaa to figure out where to put all these people so initially into a, into a hall and then later on they started identifying maybe rooms and houses and other places um and this is also a cause part of problems so you're talking about there no awareness of of maybe sensitivities between different countries or different cultures and just putting people together you have people put into situations where there's just a lot of boredom which has never Mm -hmm. been famous for 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 keeping the peace um the the state is too concerned with trying to communicate you know that we're great we're virtuous and far too it's just not concerned enough with actually getting it right in terms of how to do with it on the ground. And, and um, what happened,
0: sorry, Alan, to interrupt you, but what happened in situations like, did the state provide translators in cases where there were kids who didn't speak English and teachers and and classmates who didn't speak Ukrainian? Because that obviously must have been a huge challenge in terms of disrupting classes and, and leaving leaving refugee kids, frankly, feeling lost and abandoned um, with no one to speak to. I mean, were, were there resources put in place there to help small rural schools?
2: Eventually, um, but in a lot of cases, you know, out in West Clare again, substantial number of people uh, just turned up. Uh, it was left again to the local community to kind of figure out. They, they managed to, to find um, Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. There were some poles living nearby with some Ukrainian. So this is just scrambling around trying to find people locally who might be able to act as translators. But there the was a significant period where we, I suppose, in a certain sense, this was Irish communities at their best. Uh, working spontaneously to fix the problem but they were left very much um, you know on their own the state effectively walked away from the problem now long term though we always have this issue we have towns where there's, there's large numbers of immigrant communities our schools welcome they're very good towards them but we don't get sufficient support from the state w- with those things like translation services. Uh, so when schools are trying to communicate with parents, certainly my previous job working for the diocese down there, we had to arrange for uh, our Arab, uh, translators for Arabic, Romanian and Polish. And that was just had to be sorted out locally. There was no official support for those kind of um, uh, for, for those interactions. Um, and again, language supports for for schools are inadequate. There are some, but they're not adequate to the challenge that's there. You know, communities worked very hard to to welcome let's say the ukrainian refugees in what you're talking about the city west thing though i think we would be better off having an honest reckoning with what's happening uh having an honest conversation about it and actually figuring out what systems we need to put in place i also think the state needs to develop an immigration system that's transparent and that the public can have confidence in now i'm probably a little bit like Slightly to the left of ye, I think I'm very much happy to see immigration coming into the country. I do think we've international obligations towards people. Uh, I think we need to provide for better legal routes into the country, uh, and I think you know, and that would include for unskilled workers. I don't think we can just harvest off skilled, um, employ you know skilled workers from from abroad. We need to have some uh, way in for for low skilled or, or unskilled workers. But well, these should be open, transparent. There should be a number. There should be a process. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of our own immigration controls, the government need to need to demonstrate that they have some control on what's happening at our border. I mean, my view.
0: Yeah, I, I think, I think I, I, first of all, I mean, I, you're not as far to the left of me on immigration as you might think. Um, I suspect you're not as far to the left of David either. But I mean, I, 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 it really is a matter of emphasis. I think if you have an immigration system, it has to be one that there's public trust in. The public have to understand how many people are coming, how we're going to accommodate them, how they're going to be integrated into our communities, Um, and not just in the short term, in the long term, because I know I'll be denounced as a sort of second coming of Enoch Powell for saying this, but I do worry about what happens in 20 years' time, when you have the the sons and daughters of people who will be saying, well, when my parents came to the country, they were thrown in a hotel in City West and left there for six months. The public uh, didn't want them, they were rounded upon. Um, this was never our country. my true homeland is somewhere else. I mean, these are not fantasies. This is what's happening what's today happening? In, yeah, Belgium in Belgium and Belgium. France. Um, so I think it's I think it's something that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, worth that's having a this conversation about, but it's a conversation that conversation we just don't have. David, is there anything uh, you want to say about immigration before we move on? Um, well, I mean just
1: again, uh, uh, you see the debate here isn't all or nothing? we have to have open borders and no immigration. It's just a matter of getting the policy right. And it's a matter of getting the asylum processing system right as well. And to ask such questions as why do we have only a 5% refusal rate for asylum seekers versus the EU average of 60%. We're all interpreting um, the UN Refugee Convention from 1951. So we're, all the countries are interpreting this. France can put up its hands and say, well, you know, we're abiding by our obligations. Um, Roderick Gorman is always saying we have these international obligations. Well, they're the same across the whole EU. We have a 5% refusal rate, and the EU average is 60%, and France is 75%, all under the same convention so what's going on and again these are questions that ought to be asked and uh, because it does seem relevant to me that our refusal rate is so low so are we the only ones abiding by the convention and is every other eu country essentially not abiding by it are they not abiding by their international obligations i don't fully know the answer to that question but it really needs to be asked and answered and some of our currently politicians need to say it
0: instead of simply grandstanding and those are all very important questions, David, and we're going to keep asking them, but we're probably not going to take up this whole show asking them because that's not why we brought Alan on. We brought Alan on to talk about the um, situation in schools. With uh, If people were listening to this show last week uh, when David was sadly not here, they'll have heard a conversation about sex education in in schools and where that's going and where the National Curriculum Authority are going in terms of what your children are going to be taught. Alan is the expert on that. David, you had a couple of questions. You were talking to Alan earlier on the week. I'm currently away. um, So I'm speaking from overseas. So I haven't had the chance to to chat to Alan before the show. So I'll let you um, lead off on the issues that you thought were important.
1: Okay. So, I mean, there's a whole overarching thing about the future of um, denominational education and whether, as some people say, it is any place at all. In Irish life, unless you can completely pay for yourself and no state funding, but I think a more immediate issue, because um, uh, it's highly topical, is um, the National Council of Curriculum and Assessment is revising both the junior cycle, but it's basically junior cert. Um, um, social personal and health education um, program for schools, which incorporates relationships and sexuality education, RSE, and they're doing the same in senior cycle and they've had this consultation process and various people have made their feelings known about what ought to be taught. So we concentrate in sex ed class because I think that's obviously, you know, the uh, topic that um, 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 gives rise to most sensitivities and most nervousness. So Alan, maybe if you can say, you know, what does the revision entail and where are the concerns?
2: Well, right now, we're still in the kind of process whereby the NCCA are coming to the end of the consultation period and will we'll produce a set of recommendations that will go to the minister for approval. Or this is a cycle,
1: which is 12 to 15 years. The junior or cycle.
2: Yeah. So the junior cycle proposal is coming to the end of its cycle of form, formation or formulation, let's say, by the NCCA. Now, at the same time, the senior cycle, SBHE, short, uh, short course curriculum, is also being, is in, it's just commencing on its journey towards the same same end. Uh, so it isn't the NCCA who makes the final decision. It goes to the minister for a decision after all this. Um, so there has been, the NCCA just have recently published the results of a consultation where they published a draft specification for uh, this curriculum. Uh, and... Several thousand people responded to it. So it was actually quite a large response with over 4,000 parents um, responding uh, through the online for, uh, portal, several hundred emails, and then obviously, you know, people like my own uh, organization, CEP, and the secondary school management body, and so on and so forth, those kind of organizations also putting in their submissions. And then you had people from outside the education sector, so various different groups, uh, which would include. I suppose campaigning groups, NGOs, uh, who have various different interests in SBHE or RSE in schools. Um, well, the Iona Institute that I run put in a submission about it, and you know, you're one of those organisations would have an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, so that consultation, I suppose, w- was um, interesting. If it, it it wasn't, you know, just us Catholics uh, responding, um, there was there was plenty of people, I suppose, who who would want a. I'm going to use looser language here, but kind of a more liberal approach taken, there was those who wanted a more conservative approach, um, and you had certain other groups, like your interviewee from last week, um, the Countess, kind of second wave feminist groups uh, interacting as well, and so, so on and so forth. a um, big thing for us, from our point of view, when we we met with the NCCA and they, they produced this curriculum specification, we... So there was almost a, a sense of they were waiting for us to kind of come out fighting. No, we were actually broadly happy with what we saw. Provided I'm, go, I'm just,
1: I'm just going to interrupt you there slightly, Alan, just for the sake yeah. of the listener. So the the three areas I suppose that are most um, uh, contentious well, is um, what will be they want to teach about porn. So what's going to happen there? They want to teach about gender identity, including trans issues. What's going to happen there? And also, nobody objects to teaching about consent, but the concern is only consent. Um, you know what about relationships um so as you go along just keep those three things in mind
2: well, okay well uh, to, to take the pornography one in fairness actually to the ncca you've got to remember there's campaigning groups who are bringing pressure to bear on the ncca so we have various politicians who've lined up a couple of different bills in the oaraclus that want to force uh, a particular form of the curriculum on, onto the system and um, you also have other campaigning groups that are, that are constantly you know uh, pressurizing the NCCA on this as well. Um, But the NCCA themselves in their own specification, want to look at, at, uh, uh, they recognize the reality that young people are engaging with porn. Uh, I can tell you those of us in the Catholic sector as well, fully acknowledge that, and actually think we can, it's not a topic that can be ignored. We have to talk to young people about it. Um, But the NCCA want to talk about ethical aspects, which they're talking, you know, the, the harm that can be done in the making of porn. Uh, and also even harm that can be done in consuming it. These are all very much our common interests. Now, the thing is, outside the NTCA, there are going to be a lot of people who are very unhappy with that. Do various campaigning groups uh, that want to see porn thought in a kind of a, a sex positive way. Um, sex positive meaning. Healthy, well, you know, that this would be a part of a healthy life that can, can make you happy or whatever. Um, it's... In fairness, the NCCA, that is not the route they've gone down, but they are under heavy pressure from from some people to go down that route. So we were broadly happy. Now, at the same time, there was a strong reaction. Uh, Parents are acutely sensitive to what their children are going to be taught. Once we start veering into those kind of areas like pornography, parents are going to take a deep interest in it. And they reacted to that. And the NCCA received quite a lot of feedback for the media before Christmas on that score. Um, And I think no harm. Uh, I think it's important that parents made their voices heard uh, they are, after all, under the Constitution and in our Education Act, the primary educators of children, which is also, by the way, the, the church understands. it. We, our schools are there to serve parents and their families and their pupils and their children in terms of providing an education. But it is the it is the, the parent's role as primary educator that we serve. Now, that so, is frustrating so, for a lot of people who want a more liberal approach because they want to get round parents. But that, and that is one of our sticking points. So on pornography, we're actually happy. Look on the whole, David. I know there is some kind of view we awful Catholics want to stop certain things being thought about, or we hide, you know, the fact that there is, you know, civil marriage between same-sex couples that are now lawful in Ireland that we just refuse to teach that. Not at all. Um of course, we're, we're our church that believes truth is one of the highest values. It is simply true now that it is legally possible for a single-sex couple to have a marriage. Our schools will acknowledge that. Um, you know. And we will engage with these topics, but we want to be able to do it through a Catholic lens. And that's very important to us, that we can present the Catholic view in a positive way. Now, we'll present other points of view in dialogue and and encounter with the Catholic view, but we need to have the freedom to express uh, the Catholic view on these things. And that is one of our big concerns. We can deal with all the topics that they want, including the gender issue around transgender issues and other issues around gender. We we, We will happily teach that in our schools. But we will teach it uh, through the Catholic lens and we, we will certainly present other points of view uh, in dialogue uh, and you know, debate around that. That's fine. Um, and that's that's what we're looking for. The important thing, look, the entire curriculum is always built. Its consistency is key. And this is where, you know, curiously spiritual dropped out of the concern. Uh, the NCC at one stage dropped spiritual out of some kind of concern for the human person. So SBHE was just going to ignore the spiritual side. Now, thankfully, that seems to be back in. But that would have been complete and consistently. Similarly, in every part of the curriculum, it's always, always the characteristic spirit of the school has to be taken account of. Except it seems now an RSC, there's some kind of pulling back and we don't want to go through it, largely because I said, you know. There's certain campaigning groups that you know believe us Catholics are going to sneakily try to, to, to bury all this and ignore whatever else. Not at all. Our schools are quite happy to deal with this openly up front. Um, like, David, I think the other topic you spoke with there, you didn't actually cover, I think, what is important for us, which is parental opt-outs, mm-hmm. uh, which operate in every direction. And that is where we actually have a serious concern, because, again, if you're back to parents, once you start talking about teaching... Your children values. Parents obviously take a deep interest in that. And they have a right to withdraw their child from any class where, where, you know, according to their judgments, they don't want their child taught something. So I had a situation in the Catholic primary school. Uh, A family had withdrawn the children from religious education. That's fine. That's absolutely their right. We uphold that. It came to history class and father had a particular bugbear. there. He wanted the child withdrawn from history class the dealt with monasticism, monasticism, you know, monks and so on. <laughs> okay. No problem at all. No, it seems a little quirky, whatever else. But, you know, they're the parents. They're the primary educators. So is that a history right. class? Yeah, to history class. Mm. So, that, you know, he didn't want his child being taught about the positive history of what Irish monks did several centuries ago. That was a great value, not only to Ireland, but the entire of European civilization. Grant, it was his right. Similarly, we have to stand up for the rights of parents to withdraw their children from RSE. And by the way, that also includes parents who don't want their children taught the Catholic view. That's fine. But on they that also point, want...
1: sorry, sorry, like, I think what a lot of people don't understand is um, a parent can withdraw their children from anything. And anything. so uh, the attention tends to go on RSE and RE, yeah. which is to say religious education. Um, and, and, and by the way, there seems to be much more concern in the media for parents who want to withdraw their kids from RE class than from sex ed class. So we must have opt-outs for all the parents who don't want the kids to teach or to learn RE, but not so much concern about parents who want to opt their kids out of RSE. And in fact there are voices that say, and I think Jennifer Carol McNeil is one of them, to Dependingale the T D, RSE should be made mandatory. And I presume that would be unconstitutional to do that, but it's just the imbalance of concern for who's allowed to opt out of what.
2: A lot of them are talking about that. Basically, they want to make it mandatory for schools to teach it. Now, what they really mean by that is, you know, we don't really trust these Catholic, uh, you know, lads and lassies over here to to teach what we want them to teach. Now, the point is, our schools have always and will always engage with pupils on this. Could we we have done it better in the past? Absolutely. Are there improvements you can make to do today? Absolutely. But even the Joint Oireachtas Committee, her testimony from the NCCA as well, that actually point out ethos is not a barrier to the teaching of these things. The, the barriers to the teaching of these things is the, the confidence of teachers to engage with the topic. Now we're quite happy and our a lot of our schools and our trust bodies are working to build that confidence and have been doing so for quite a number of years. And we are getting much better and better at dealing with these topics. We have no problem, but yes, certain politicians want to kind of bring in a bill that will force every school to teach this. There's no need for the bill in the sense that we're going to teach it anyway but more insidiously some of them want to to bring in this thing that parents won't be able to talk their children out and you have this mm-hmm. language and it's there in the NCCA consultation report where they're kind of pulling from the Irish human rights commission uh who who are saying that you know parents don't have the right that that uh you know students you see, have that's the really right.
1: significant such an important yeah, body is.
2: yeah no, that. they are but I, I don't know who they represent i mean how mem- many mem- members do they have how I many are actually paying membership fees? Like who who are they in a sense? They have but to hear a government. Event, they they've expressed a view that there is this. Now you have to look out for the qualifier. So the qualifier is always there where it is factual and objective. And for the whole, so the number of this issue is just what parts of ORC are factual and objective. What, what, once you get beyond the mere biological facts, you're really into ethics, and that's where. Different people are going to have different views and and to pretend there's some kind of view that all wise men and women hold is a fiction. Well, on that,
0: uh, and this is where I want to talk, it, it relates to my conversation with, with Leisha last week. Um, and that is on the issue of um, what one might call gender theory, mm. because it was her contention. And I've, I've researched it subsequently and found her to be largely correct that there are... Uh, there, there are a lot of people in the education sector who want um, gender theory, and by that I mean the idea that they're not, that you and I are male but may choose to be female and we're all at some point on a gender spectrum and you can, you no, can we're have… Cis, we're cis males. Well, we can have 15 genders over the course of our lives if we wish to, um, and it's a matter of choice, that this be taught not as a sort of what it is, which is a relatively new and esoteric theory, but as fact. Um, and I presume, Alan, that Catholic schools would have a strenuous objection to teaching that theory as fact.
2: Well, first off to say, by the way, Catholic schools have been dealing with um, pupils you know, presenting with, with questions around their gender and, and different gender identities uh, in Catholic schools for some time now with very little drama because mm-hmm. our schools... Aren't concerned with the ideology. They're not concerned with you know particular debates taking place you know at a national level or getting into all these niceties. They're just concerned with the person in front of them. They deal with them. They deal with their parents. The schools take guidance from the parents on how to address the needs of that pupil, and they do so respectfully. So it's it's a pastoral response which we take quite seriously. That the the child, the pupil, must be respected. Their dignity must be upheld, and their parents' views. Uh, have a a huge amount of weight in terms of how Catholic schools will will, uh, address um, the the, the needs that their child have. So Minister O'Gorman recently said, yes, this must all be thought, it must be thought as fact, and he included primary schools in that. Now, as it happens, the primary school management body for Catholic primary schools have taken advice from uh, professionals working with children and adults with gender dysphoria. And View coming back which which is being expressed by cpsma which is the, the, the primary school management body for catholic schools it's it, they have written to the to minister gorman and uh, minister foley to say we have concerns about this this is not established scientific fact Um, you know we have medical professionals telling us they find this incredibly difficult to explain to their medical colleagues and it can't just be packaged down into something that can be communicated to teachers or to primary school children, or indeed to teenagers in in our sec in our post-primary schools, that there is still a huge amount of uh disagreement at a scientific level as to what exactly is happening. Now, that doesn't mean we we, we don't try to uh meet these people with dignity and respect and to, to work with them, but that that does mean we have to avoid teaching us back stuff that is not actually established at all. So we have, I mean, the Catholic primary school body have written to the ministers with that concern and and with the concern of any proposed teacher in our schools furthermore it is still a matter of contested public debate and to suddenly bring that contested public debate within schools is to invite conflict uh, within schools that doesn't belong in schools these things are, are should be dealt with through the public forum Ad, you know adults will have this debate it might take us several years but to simply try to crowbar it into schools and thereby bring what is a matter of heated public contestation into the fora of schools, we just don't see that as prudent. Yeah, do you, you see know, the... That, that, that sorry, to in and, and to involve schools in a battle that doesn't really belong to them and to pull children sorry. into that.
0: Sorry, David, I did want to follow up with something Alan said there a little while ago, just because it's interesting. And I appreciate it, Alan, you may not have the answer yeah. to this question. But it strikes me that one of the reasons that this particular issue is so strikingly difficult for so many people and is probably almost impossible and nightmarish for mm. schools is that when you say, as you said a moment ago, that schools deal with the person in front of them and deal with them in the most caring and compassionate way that they can, which I is what they should do and um, which I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure they do. But that inherently creates a conflict, because if, for example, you have a child who is presenting as as suddenly at the age of 10, 11, 13 or 14, having um, reassigned their gender identity to something new. The school, by acknowledging that as factual and correct um, and, and acknowledging that student in their new identity, is essentially confirming to every other student in the school that this is legitimate, real, possible, and anyone can do it. Um, and and there's a there there is a, an inherent conflict between the rights of the individual on the one hand, and the right to free, fair, open debate, and for other students in the school not to feel pressured to um, shift their consciences in a particular direction. How do schools deal with that? Are they aware of that that challenge? Um, and and it, 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 I, I suppose it's an open-ended question, but but. Where do you go with that as as an education body to balance those rights? Because clearly the major, the majority view in what I might call the the um, the chatterati or the consensus uh, of elite opinion in Ireland is all running in one direction. But I don't think parental opinion is all running in one direction. No, it's
2: not. Um, you know, it's, it is a balancing act. And, but schools are, look, schools are very good at this. Um, you know, and I have to say, even within Catholicism, I don't mean to get too philosophically on you now, lads, but one of the most important words in Catholicism is and, because we're always this strain between, let's say, faith and uh reason, between faith and good works, scripture and tradition. Um Catholicism is a harmonizing religion. It, it actually brings into itself conflicting views and then harmonizes them. That is the way Catholic thinking works. It, it's it's a remarkable body of thinking. And I know you know there's people who think we're, we're just kind of simplistic kind of people, but you have 2,000 years of thought uh, contained within Catholic thought. And it is, we attempt to harmonize and balance. There is always a difference between something that will be there at a theoretical level versus the concrete reality of the individual. And that is where the pastoral approach takes place. Now, that doesn't mean you engage in in falsehood or anything else, but it still means you must react to the person where they are and accompany them then, uh, you know, through that um yeah. it is not it, it, i can't get it and the thing is there's no standard answer to this because each individual is just that an individual and the mistake is made this is all thought at some kind of idea idealized level you know and i'm with edmund burke you know this horror of treating people as abstractions that we become more fascinated with the ideology rather than just with the, the individual person in front of us mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite writers not a catholic albert camus you know, famously said of his mother you know and justice he said like you know i will always choose my mother over justice because you always favor the concrete person over the abstract idea and i know that's not a satisfactory answer to you, to you, john and you want something else but that is the complexity we deal with
0: no, i don't want um, a, I, don't, I don't want anything else i just wanted an answer yeah. and i think that's a very good one to be fair uh, but I, I think it's also important to recognize the challenges teachers are facing if i can just if i can just
1: say um, um john the ncca summary document of what people were saying at the consultation it refers to these parents who have concerns about um how gender identity would be taught in schools but it says that these parents have the view that sex is a binary uh, so it's treated as a kind of almost eccentric and fringe opinion and there's still these kind of you know flat earthers who are kind of silly enough to believe that sex is binary male and female and it's not all a matter of subjectivity in the mind. And so you can see where the, you know where the NCCA is coming from on this um that it is reducing uh, the view that actually your biological sex is determinative of what your sex and gender is um as eccentric and marginal, and to be probably ultimately pushed further to the margin. So this to me shows where the state is going to see in the minds, uh, and this is the kind of uh, narrative framing always you've got kind of primitive, intolerant, repressive Catholic sex education on the one hand, and you've got this bright, shiny, modern, inclusive, tolerant version on the other. And that's probably the way parents most uh, mostly frame it in their minds. And I think a lot of them are probably blissfully unaware of just where, and they're not liberal voices particularly, some of these are very radical, want to lead RSE. So gender identity taught as an absolute fact that your biological body is actually unimportant uh, to the sex or gender you declare yourself to be. There are um, voices who are influential in this debate as well. They want want to teach simply that actually porn can have really bad effects on your imagination and behavior and the way you perceive the world and the way you perceive the opposite sex. They also want to teach that porn can be ethical and it can have positive effects um uh, and these are people who work out of places like galway university and so on um and then they want to reduce sexual morality to consent alone so so long as there's consent everything is hunky-dory so theoretically you can meet a different person every night of the week and so long as there's consent it's absolutely fine love relationships marriage become purely optional extras and i am not convinced that your average parent shares that vision of sex ed so they might be thinking Oh, well, but Catholic Church teaches about contraception. That's ridiculous and completely old hat and wanting to wait until marriage, completely ridiculous and old hat and so on. But I'm not convinced that they would be sold on what some people are trying to present and shove into schools as the alternative.
0: Is there anything in the curriculum, Alan, dealing with um, what we might term as the emotional impacts of consensual sex? In other words, the risk you take when you fall for somebody um go to bed with them and then find that they don't love you as much as they they said is there anything in the curriculum dealing with that for kids or those risks or is it purely physical and sexual health
2: actually interestingly um i'd be very much in favor of this but the feedback that came back from students themselves in post-primary was that they wanted less of a focus on the s bit of rse and more on the or Mm-hmm. including that emotional aspect you talk about so this this was the voice of young people themselves and the other one was that they they just didn't want to hear about bullying week in week out it's an important topic but there are other aspects to relationships with other people good and bad mm-hmm. so the voice of young people was very much on the emotional impact of relationships sexual and non-sexual and that they wanted to learn, learn more about that and in fairness the ncca they have reflected that and it is certainly something you know in catholic schools we absolutely want to be able to talk about that. Just what you mentioned there, the emotional impact of relationships. Um, and that's one of the reasons we want, I suppose, to to um, continue to ensure the right of Catholic schools to teach in accordance with their own characteristic spirit. Because um, that is important. I, consent is an important idea, but it is an idea that is very much a baseline. And I think for people who want to have, certainly the Catholic view, uh, you know, flourishing life a, a happy life they there are other aspects to sexual relations that that you know can either harm or or enhance your emotional well-being and yeah. um, we are quite we we want to teach that now there's
0: it's, nothing it's says we
2: can't so far but you know this is this is where we we want to be able to go into it because it is it is an essential part of how we get on um i think the other part yeah. and it's one of my little hobby horse that i know you're trying to intervene consent itself the way it is talked about is so legalistic. It has very little emotional attachment to those who are hearing about it. <laughs> that in order to actually engage with pupils, you need to broaden it out into other aspects where there is some sense of purpose to life where this makes sense within. And you get a kind of uh, an emotional imaginative hook where the ideas of consent then get grounded into the person. Because otherwise, if you're trying to just teach it a series of legal tests, I just don't know if it'll... Do what people who want, you know, want to push, uh, who particularly want to focus on consent, will achieve. I, I think you have to give people some some broader ethical motivation to do the right thing in these situations Alan, or, or, if, like, or,
1: uh, sorry john a few years ago i was on uh, i'm conscious we're kind of coming up against our seven post yeah. time limit but a few years ago when rte used to still invite me on i was on prime time and, and there was a debate about rsc and i was up against this sex advice columnist from the irish times and um and the issue was consent uh and so i was saying that doesn't go far enough i mean i think most parents would want their children to be taught um, that they should, at a minimum, get to know, like, and trust the other person properly first. And um, and the person and um, who was on the other side, she objects because I used the word should. You should get to know, like, and trust the other person properly first, because the word should is shame-inducing, all right? So it has to go from the vocabulary, all right? So in other words, consent alone is enough, and then stop. Everything else becomes optional. Don't use the word should you'd have to say something like well if you want to there can be love and if you want to there can be marriage and if you want to there can be a relationship but we're not going to make any qualitative judgment about it whatsoever because that's shame inducing so that's where we're at in respect of this debate
0: well the point i was going to make uh, was that in any other field of um legalism if you want to use the term because i've mentioned it and it is very legalistic but in any other legalistic for um um issue or where consent is used it's called informed consent so if people think to when they were getting or perhaps in the case of some people not getting their COVID 19 vaccinations one of the underlying principles there was your consent must be informed you must be informed ahead of time of all the risks as well as the benefits of taking this injection Um, with consent as it's taught in terms of sexual relationships the informed part goes out the window that's the first thing and secondly there is no there is no um concept of of responsibility with consent so you don't necessarily have response for responsibility for another person's emotional welfare after they have consented to a particular um, activity or course of action and i think that is um i think that 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 is teaching people in a way to be bad human beings because you do have a responsibility to somebody who consents to be that intimate with you and you do have a duty to make sure that not only do they consent but they, they are informed and they are fully in, char- in charge of their own emotional well-being as well, because you're taking that in your hands. You're taking their heart often in your hands. And that part of sex education, I'm, I'm not, by the way, in any way in favor, i I'm, um, I'm not in any way in favor of a kind of strict moralistic sex education where you're told don't have sex. That's that's not something I favour, but I do think it's important if you're going to talk about adult relationships to talk about all the complexities of them and all the dangers and risks that are not purely physical. So that's the point I was going to make, and I think, Alan, you addressed it. We
1: should just very briefly, because we promised, uh, you and I, John, at least, um, address the latest twists and turns in the Enoch Burke saga. So I'll start so you can finish. Um, uh, you see, this got so entangled in the disciplinary dispute between uh, him and the school, Uh, that we don't see the wood for the trees anymore. Um, It's a pity it wasn't the most kind of cleaner, clear-cut case about a school saying to a teacher, you must publicly assent to gender ideology or else. um, You must use these gender pronouns uh, or you're sacked. And because of the disciplinary matters uh that's all been blurred so one day a conscience case may emerge where a school is actually effectively holding a gun to a teacher's head and said you must declare out loud uh, and say something that you do not believe in and if a liberal society ever wants to do that so let's say um the teacher says no and the teacher gets sacked and works his way up to the supreme court what will liberal Ireland think will liberal Ireland say that teacher we believe, must be forced, compelled to say something they do not believe, then we are not a liberal country anymore at all, because liberal countries do not believe in compelled speech. So it's just a pity this case was not it, but I think at some point a case like that will emerge. So over to you,
0: John, for the last word. Well, I mildly disagree with you because this was that case to some extent, um, in that whether you like it or not, the consequences of this will be... Now, I should say I should preface my remarks by saying that I think with all respect to Enoch Burke and with all respect to his family, um his case could not have been prosecuted any more poorly than it has been, in my opinion, in my honest opinion. Um but that said, I think the impacts of it will be will be widespread. I, I don't think um I, 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 I don't, I'm not sure what those impacts will be yet. Is it a case that schools will decide that they don't want to risk a situation like this themselves? And we'll simply try to avoid it by not pressurizing teachers to do this. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. Or is it the case that other teachers will wish not to follow Enoch Burke's example? Um, I think there has been a slight watershed here. I think a Rubicon has been crossed. I think it is very clear if you take away all the the BS um, about the court case and Enoch not refusing, not obeying court orders and all that other ill-advised nonsense that went on. um, at, At the very core of this case, it's a case about whether he was obliged to use a particular set of pronouns that he did not feel accorded that he does not feel accord with objective reality. Um, he took that fight. He might have fought the fight badly, but he's lost it. Um, and I think that will have impacts. And I think we need to be aware, of, be wary of those impacts. And I think it is a shocking pity in one respect that the the person and the family who were left to fight this case were the Burks. Who, and there are many people who listen to us are, are big fans of the works and I think in some ways their resilience is very admirable but I'm not sure that the way this case was prosecuted was conducive to the to the outcome that I think would have been best uh, which was that that this be resolved in favor of the teacher. Um, and I don't think that um that that everyone involved has covered themselves in glory here and I include the school in that That's my view, David. Very good. Um, And that, um, I think, folks, is all we have time for. I want to put on record my um, absolute thanks to Alan Hines uh, for joining us and and talking us through a very complicated issue. Um, Alan, you are on Twitter, I think, at, at Alan Hines. Um, or at Heinz Allen, Allen, and, and people mm-hmm. should follow you because Allen is is a very erudite and considered voice, and oftentimes a much more moderate voice than David and I <laughs> uh, on the on, on these issues. And uh, and 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 if you're not following him, please do. Um, thanks to all of you for listening to us as ever. Thanks to David for putting up with me, um, and thanks to the internet connection here in Florence for surviving this hour of conversation. I
2: wasn't sure that it would, but it has. But for now, folks, until next time, that was the week that really was.